forever. Dog! Robin was our court jester. Of course, as you know, every moment they said, okay, cut, we're moving to the new location, take about 10 minutes off. He would always just go on and be the comedian in real life. And he never, he was almost compulsive. He almost couldn't stop doing it. However, since it was free and we were bored in between sets, between shots, we were glad to have a guy around who would entertain us like that. Welcome to Household Faces, the podcast where a character actor interviews other character actors. I'm your host, John Ross Bowie. You might know me from The Big Bang Theory or Speechless or my role as waiter in the 2000 sex comedy Road Trip. Before Tom Hanks earned the moniker of America's Dad, it was Paul Dooley. Mr. Dooley has been an incredible father in films like Sixteen Candles and Breaking Away on the TV show My So-Called Life. He continues to do amazing work into his 90s. We're going to talk about all of that, Popeye with Robert Altman, his time with Second City, and the time he got to work with Buster Keaton. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Paul Dooley. Paul Dooley, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. I I, I want to start. I know you've talked about this a great deal, but I, I this is so embarrassing. I have I saw Breaking Away for the first time two days ago. I don't know why. I just never got around to it for some <laughs> reason. I uh, and I owe you a massive apology. It's so good. I know why people love it so much. And I know you've talked about it a lot, but you've got that spell there in the late 70s, early 80s, where you're playing these wonderful dads. Yeah, that was sort of a decade for me, and uh, partly because of Robert Altman. Right, because you, I mean, you, got, you start I... with with uh, a wedding. Um, the Altman film yeah. that is not streaming anywhere. I can't find it. You can find the trailer, and that's it. I mean, I'm sure if I go onto the dark web or something, I'll find a copy of it. Um and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna touch on Altman. Don't you worry. Sure. But but the thing about Breaking Away that's so interesting is that character has such a huge arc. I mean, he goes from being rather cantankerous and dismissive to being this very lovely, warm, inclusive guy over the course of that film's two hours. It, it begs the question: Did you get along with your dad? No, but I did base my characterization on my dad, who was. Uh, he wasn't exactly a grumbling, cranky guy who did the slightly sarcastic moments. He was just a very buttoned-up guy who didn't say much, you know. But almost all my work as, as characters, because my first movie, I was 49, and I was already not a leading man. I was a character actor. And uh, almost always I, I based uh, it on him. He had very little humor, but he did have a, a, a withdrawn, repressive kind of character. And uh, I did add humor to it. But uh, I'll give you an example. I never saw him smile. I never heard him laugh. He was a man who only cared about work. And he, he worked in a factory, uh, so it wasn't about that. But he, uh, he would couldn't. <clears throat> come home from work about three o'clock or four, put down his lunch pail, go to his workshop and work there until he was called for dinner. And he didn't interact very much with the family. It just, you know, we ate in silence, that kind of thing. We, we lived in West Virginia. And uh, I, I thought everybody's dad was like my dad. He was an, he was an, he was an okay guy, wasn't a bad guy. He just had, didn't have, his father had abandoned the family. He didn't have a father in growing up, so he didn't know how to be one, you know? So he left everything to the mother. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Had he yeah. um, had he served in the military? No. No. He had, um, his, his um, eyes are, his eyes were very bad. He could, you know, had these big uh, Coke bottle glasses, you know, the bottom of the bottle. So was there a part uh, you, of you in in a wedding in 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 breaking away, especially in Sixteen Candles? Was there a part of you that was like, okay, I'm going to be the dad I want to see in the world? 
Uh, yeah, <clears throat> I didn't use him as a model in 16 Candles. I was myself. But I, I don't know how to explain this, but I think there's something innate in my acting or in my personality which says I can be a dad. Because I've been a dad to 25 actors. I've just finished a book, my memoir, and it's called Movie Dad. <laughs> that is a uh, that is a perfect title. Uh, I mean, you're so much more, but uh, that is a a terrific uh, title. What do you now? It's funny because when you did Breaking Away, you'd actually worked with Dennis Christopher before, um, you're, who plays your your son in in Breaking Dennis Away. Dennis was in uh, he was in Wedding. Yeah, he was in the Altman movie with you. He had a smaller part, but he was my son. Yeah. So when you repeat casting like that so soon, how do you keep it fresh? How do you keep it? Uh, how, do, how do you keep it kind of dynamic so it isn't just the same relationship from the last movie? Well, it doesn't hurt anything if you feel you feel fatherly toward the character. It doesn't hurt anything. If anything, it could help that you feel, oh, this is my son. You know, I mean, you're a different character in uh, in Breaking Away. But uh, I found it was helpful because I knew Dennis, you know, so there was a familial and a familiar feeling. You strike me as the sort of person who who would want to do that sort of extra bit of connecting and bonding with your 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 25 uh, TV and movie children. Uh, yeah. yeah, the sort of person who'd maybe want to like sit and have lunch with them and get to know them a little bit more as opposed to just hit the ground running. Is that right? Well, <clears throat> you know how the movies work. Frequently, you don't meet people until you get on the set. Right. You get to the location, even though you might like that. One thing Altman did, I noticed when I met him, I didn't know much about film directors. I'd been in New York doing theater and <clears throat> a lot of commercials and all those things. But <clears throat> the day we arrived for wedding, he said, uh, the two families in the wedding are sort of against each other. Uh, Vittorio Gossman and Dina Merrill were uh, new, uh, were uh, rich people, and Carol Burnett and I were nouveau riche. We oh, were interesting. From Kentucky, and I owned a chain of diesel truck stops, but I was a, you know, more more like a kind of a Southern type guy. And uh, he said, if you go to dinner, we had a, a week before we started shooting. He likes to do that to familiar, familiarize his cast with each other. And he said, go to dinner with Carol and your kids, but don't go to dinner with Vittorio Gossman and uh, Dina Merrill. I don't want you people to like each other. So there should be a distance sort of built in to the character, the actors yeah. anyway. So I thought that was clever of him. Yeah, the, the enemies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In every college town, there's a sort of a thing with the townies and the college boys. You know, there's a tendency to make fun of the locals, you know? Right, right. It was so great to, like, focus on the locals and make them the the internal sort of uh, the, the locus of the, the whole film. What's interesting, I said this before, the dad has probably the biggest growth. He goes from being uh, dismissive of bicycling, dismissive of the uh, the interesting Italian fetish his son has, to being this incredibly warm, uh, uh, welcoming father. Were you able to, to, well, first off, did you shoot it in order or did you have to kind of bounce around? Uh, it wasn't in continuity. No. The uh, the bicycle race was the last uh, week. Oh well, that's good. Yeah, that was that was the big shoot, and that had the kind of thing where you meet six cameras or something. Of course, of course. As I sat in the theater uh, when I went to the premiere, I saw I'd seen some dailies, but not too many. Uh, what amazed me is I I knew that the audience liked it. There were a lot of laughs, and there seemed to be interest. But it's only when Dennis came across that finish line 
and this doesn't happen in movies or even at premieres very often, everybody not only cheered, but they stood up because it was, it was like a six-minute build-up to the moment. So when Dennis Christopher came across the finish line, threw his hands in the air, uh, <clears throat> the whole audience practically stood up. It was a, you don't see that in the theater that I mean, a movie theater that much. I have somehow avoided spoilers for 40 years. So I was on the edge of my seat two days ago watching that race, <laughs> thinking like this yeah. could go, this could be like sort of a Rocky thing where he comes in second place, but he does okay. Sorry to spoil Rocky to the listener, but you've had 45 years there. Um, <laughs> so when, when he wins, it is really satisfying. And then when he holds up the, uh, the trophy that's really satisfying and i thought they were going to freeze frame on that and that would be the end of the film but that isn't the last frame of the film now is it no uh, <laughs> in fact after that you see i'm on a bicycle which is a little humorous button and i come from be uh, my wife comes from behind the hood of a car and she's pregnant so that's a new life coming mm -hmm. and uh, so there was a nice ending and uh, of course the last line is he passes me and we pass each other in the bike and he says, Bonjour, Papa. And my double take to the camera or to him says, Oh, here we go again. Now it's with the French. <laughs> We've had the Italian, now we got the French. And it's all wordless. I just look back over my shoulder and they liked it so much in the editing, they freeze they froze the frame of my take looking that, backwards. That was exactly gonna and, be my uh, question. Go and ahead. then they ran the, ran the credits over. I talked to the editor once. He said, we didn't want to, we liked that of ending on you and your sort of double take, but you're fading away. So it's not, it's not so strong. So I so, said, wait a minute, let's freeze the frame. And, and then they ran the credits beside it. It's an amazing moment because, you know, ostensibly the four teenagers are the leads of the film, but they freeze on you. And it makes me think that while they were in post, they realized what gold they had from you in what was your second film role? The third wedding, then perfect couple, then breaking away. Right. Okay. Um, perfect couple. Another Altman film was breaking up was the perfect couple. The, the, you talk about that, that sort of stillness that, um, that you, that sort of, quiet shock that you register at the end of that. And I heard you give an interview to some friends of mine, uh, Mark Gagliardi and Hal Lublin, about Buster Keaton, who yeah. I'm to understand was a a, a big influence uh, on you. Can can you yes, talk a little I bit about, about how he, because there's such an understated quality to your comedy that I think goes back to, to Keaton. Well, uh, <clears throat> I did a one-man show three years ago. Yeah. And in it, I used uh, Keaton as a leitmotif that went all the way through it. When I was 15, I saw on a tiny little eight-millimeter screen in a friend's, uh, a schoolmate's um, bedroom, uh, Keaton for the first time, and I fell in love. Uh, there's something about his humanity that comes through his comedy that just somehow got to my heart, you know, in admiration of his skills. But as much as his persona. At the end of my one-man show, I said, why did I love him so much? It's over and above his talent. And I said, wait a minute, my dad was, a, my father was a man of few words. We show a picture of my father. Buster was a man of no words. We morph into a picture of Buster. And I say, I never saw my father smile. And we turn the pictures again. Same thing with Buster. I realized that long ago, Buster had become my surrogate father and I followed him instead of my real father. Wow. Because uh, uh, the real father never made me laugh, but Buster did. When I was 30 years after I saw him on film at 15 years old, I did a, I met Keaton and did a commercial with him. My God. What was that like? And that was a, a dream come true. That would have been near the end of his life. He was pretty, he was pretty old. He did a commercial for Ford uh, Econoline vans. I was a Keystone cop. Oh, my God. To meet him and to see him was incredible. We had a two-day shoot. I was so dumbstruck, I didn't even speak to him. I didn't want to intrude on him. I didn't have, I was too shy. <clears throat> but the beginning of the, at the end of the last day, I went to him and I said, I have a book at home, uh, My Wonderful World of Slapstick, which you wrote. 
uh, and a few pic and a couple of pictures of you. If I brought them, would you sign them? And he said, sure. Then I said in my one man show in the book I wrote, the only word I never heard him speak. Wow. <laughs> one word, one syllable. But he's always been my hero. It's interesting when you compare and contrast him with Chaplin, which gets done a lot. Yeah. It's interesting because I feel like Chaplin had his roots in the British Music Hall, which had a real yeah. quality of having to play to the back of a theater, whereas Keaton was just film through and through, knew where the camera was. No, film was all, Keaton was also in vaudeville, which is the same as Music Hall. He grew up in vaudeville. But did he, but what is it, how was he able to adjust his performance for this brand new medium in such an incredible way, knowing full well that he didn't have to play to the cheap seats, that he he could, I don't, I, there's just something so strikingly well, the intimate only, about his work. The only thing is in the theater, if you're speaking, if you, if you speak, then you do have to reach the back row. If you're doing uh, visual stuff and pantomime and acrobatics, It'll travel to the back row. It's bigger than your voice in a way because you see someone fall down from the back row. You still see it well. Uh, he was trained in vaudeville from the age of four. Oh, that's he, right. That's right. I did. He know was that. falling down for a living, you know, all <laughs> he, through his uh, childhood. And he broke his he neck a couple times. I think, like, we kept walking, but broke his neck a couple times, which I didn't think you could do and still walk around. But he yeah, managed to. He, and that piece of footage is in the film where he fell off of the, off of a of a train on the car with the the section which carries the wood, oh, an open right. platform. It's and in he the fell film. down and hit his neck on the track, but he ran away in the shot, uh, as he should have. Yeah, improvising. <laughs> it still remains in the in the picture. The, the moment was in the picture. I forget which picture it was. It uh, wasn't the, the general, but it it's was not another the general. It's another train, train one. Yeah. Um, yeah, he loved trains. <clears throat> there's still something so interesting because whenever I see, you know, you see a close-up on on Chaplin and there's so much contortion going on and there's so much, look, I'm kind of adorable, aren't I? And Keaton is just there. He just trusts that his eyes are telling the story. I'm not trying to get anyone to talk smack about Chaplin. I just have explored, I guess I'm just expressing why I love Keaton so much more. No, I think there's more to him. Uh, I always felt that I could watch Chaplin from afar, and uh, but Keaton seemed to be like a person you could you could sit and have lunch with. He seems so much like just a mensch. That's exactly it. That I think is the exact thing. There was a, a real approachability about him. That's right. He's a, he's a guy you could know. He doesn't have any pretensions, and uh, not to talk bad about Chaplin. We know he's a genius. Of his, Absolutely. Uh, Yes, he's a pantomime, pantomimic genius. However, uh, it could be said that Chaplin is always showing off. Always, look at me, look what I can do. Every every move he makes, uh, every twitch of his mustache, his eyes, he's always sort of, he's acting, but there's a show-off quality to it. Yeah. And and you know, he's smarter than you, he's smarter than the audience, smarter, smarter than, than any other character. Yeah. Yeah, he... Yeah, his own ego comes through the character. That's, I think, a really good way to put it. Buster is as insecure as the average person. If there's ever a fight, Chaplin sometimes will uh, swing at a guy or he'll kick a fat man in the pants or a fat lady even, especially in his early movies. Right. Whenever there's a, when there's an altercation, Buster runs away. Buster is a pacifist. Yeah, oh, that's he's, a good point. He's always running, running away from situations. Anyway, but in terms of technicality, many of the critics I've read say he was much, much, much better uh, filmmaker than Chaplin because he used the medium in new ways all the time. There's a movie in which Buster gets out of a car and then following that, Buster gets out of a car again. And by closing off the, the uh, camera in little vertical sections, he created something that hadn't been done before you could have six busters leaving a car, and it was all trick photography. Well, he was he mastering up, double exposure and, and all sorts of uh, things. There's stuff yeah, in Sherlock Jr. that is incredible. Yes, and he walked down the aisle in Sherlock Jr. and joined the people in the movie. 
No one's ever done that before, although Woody Allen stole it for the Purple Rose of Cairo. But it took, you know, 50 or 60 years for someone to, you know, convincingly rip it off. It was that <laughs> it was that good. You mentioned um, uh, Keaton's improvisation, and what I normally ask my guests is how they got started in improv. I'm going to ask you how you helped start improv, <laughs> uh, as we know it, as an American art form. You're, um, I mean, you're one of the or- original Second City guys. Were you in the Compass Theater as well? Were you involved with the Compass? No, no, I never, I never lived in Chicago. But at a certain point, it opened in '59, and about '61. It came to Broadway and played for a short time. They got good reviews, but the people didn't get it. They weren't used to people turning to them and saying, who am I? What am I doing? You know, asking questions and improvising. So it got good reviews and only ran for three months. And then the producers took it off Broadway into a cabaret, much like Second City in Chicago, where the audience could put their feet on the stage. It was only a foot high. Mm-hmm. And have a cheeseburger, a cheeseburger, and a beer while they watched improv, and that was a much, much better venue for improvisation. And nearby was New York University, and that became our audience. Wait, was it the Village Gate? Were you at the Village Gate? No, we were in a place later called the Bottom Line. Oh, it's sure, Washington. Yeah, you know where it is. Yeah, and yeah. and while we were there, it was called Square East. It's near Washington Square. Yeah, it's like a block from Washington but, Square. It's a practically but, uh, on the NYU but, campus. Yes. And uh, I worked with those originals came there, including Alan Arkin. Mm-hmm. And uh, we played there for, it played there for three years. I only did about a year and a half. But it had those original gang, about seven of them. And that would come to Broadway Arkin. and then it, off Broadway. Is that Barbara Arkin Harris in there? Barbara, Barbara Harris was one. Those are the ones that kind of broke out and became known to the public. She made movies and she had leads on Broadway. There was also, a guy, was, there was also a guy named Andrew Duncan who... Andrew, yes. Andrew who, was there. Who I gather was a, a friend of yours and a colleague of yours. And he, everything we became I've, partners. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Everything I've read he about was, that guy was, makes me think he was very similar in tone to what you do. Just a very... Uh, a very less is more approach to comedy. Is is that correct? That's right. Andrew was always the glue that held the, the uh, company together. He was the guy who would uh, act as the unofficial stage manager backstage. He would rally the troops. He would say, okay, we got five minutes, gang. He was unofficially a stage manager. He was just a go-getter. And he would always be the guy who played the interviewer, the psychiatrist, the counselor, the boss. There's always that guy. An authoritative figure. He was always that guy. Yeah. Well, what happened was this. When we Second City came to New York, the ad agencies got very interested in us. The ad agencies wanted Second City people to be in their commercials, but they didn't trust improv. They want everything to be pinned down word for word. But they, they wanted us for radio. So Andrew and I, who were very verbal actors, uh, were first pegged to go and do radio commercials. We did them so well that we began and we stopped improving their copy, their writing. And we said, look, let us improvise the whole thing. You just give us the salient uh, points about your commercial, three or four items, a few lines we can use that you want. And we'll make it a, a beginning, middle and end. And it'll be like a short scene. Like a sh- And we became excellent at that. We were so good that we formed a little company. And together we did about 750 radio commercials over 750. Yeah, something like that. And I did another 250 commercials uh, on camera and voiceover. But Andrew and I became a a radio comedy team. We're going to go out of order. I didn't expect to jump ahead to this, but you mentioned like, all right, give me like three or four salient points and then just let us go. How do you take that skill set and move it over to Christopher Guest? Well, is it the same thing? It, well, there there is an outline in the Chris Guest movie. Right, the scene is about this, but it's all my, we make up our words. We always make up all the words. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we and I work for Larry David as well. Yeah, and in both cases, we improvise the words. 
But there, we were be told by the stage manager, the script is six pages long instead of, you know. 35 <laughs> you'd or 40. Have, uh, yeah. yeah, 35 or 40. Or for a sitcom, it might be 30 pages, a half yeah. hour long. But uh, we just, I made it my own decision to follow Larry. Real improvisation is you follow each other. They call it follow following the follower. Yeah, yeah. But I knew with Larry David, I knew instinctively my job was to really make him look good and to only go where he went and not to bring up new information, just right. ha- helping him tell his story. But they can, they can tell you before the be, you began to shoot, they could say, all you have to do is accomplish this. Larry will bring come in with this idea and you stay with that idea and help him out. So that's that's what I did. It was much more helpful than Larry David to say, wait a minute, Larry, you can't say that. Because <laughs> <laughs> he, he, in normal times, he can't. Right, but, sure. Uh, I, was, I played his father-in-law. His guy, the wife came off the show. When she was gone, he didn't need me anymore. But uh, I was always friendly with Larry. And he's not cranky like that on his show. No, no, he's you not. Never, he's actually, he, he's pretty friendly. He's very affable and a lot of fun. You see him in his real, in his show, he laughs a lot. Yeah. I do a lot of thinking about comedy. And I think that most comedians develop a style before they know they'll ever be a comedian. In the schoolyard, they find ways, if they're maybe a little short or a little too Jewish or whatever, and they're picked on for whatever reason, uh, they use uh, comedy as a defense mechanism. Make them laugh and they won't beat you up. Larry David probably uh, was picked on in some way or bullied a little because there's always bullying somebody. And he's he's an individual, so he stands out in a way. My feeling is that he turned it around and made them laugh. And you'll notice that even though he's criticizing people, in his show, he's often smiling at the same time. Yeah. Not only would say, "You, uh, what are you doing that for? You don't have to order dessert at the end. Just go home, you know. Uh, but he'll kind of laugh through the line, through the complaint. He laughs or smiles and makes you like him. And I believe he developed that growing up. I think there's something about that show that he's, your, your job in, you mentioned this a little bit, your job when you, cause I, I did an episode in season four, I want to say my wife and I played neighbors of, of Larry's and your job is basically to show up and straight man him and yeah, just, that's right. and, and be offended if need be usually the need yeah. be. And, um, yeah. and just like, let that, that sort of natural rapport just take you wherever you're going to go. And it's an incredibly satisfying place to work, but you're right. He's far, far more affable in person than I think Larry David is more uh, affable than quote Larry David end quote than the character Larry. Yeah. Yeah. But he, but everybody asked me, is he like that? Is there such a pain in the butt on the set? And he's not at all. He's easy to get along with. And he's a colleague. He doesn't want to uh, turn you off or criticize you. He's a collaborator. He's a nice he'll he'll laugh at your stuff. He's 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 yeah, a, right. he creates a really a really nice atmosphere. Talking about atmosphere for a moment. Um, you got your star after the Second City gig. You did the Broadway run of The Odd Couple. Yeah, not the um, whole run. It ran. I I left after a year. I don't think anybody did the entire run. It was on for forever. But were you on there with no. with Mathau and uh, Carney? I was. I was in the original. I went out of town. Yeah. Three different cities. We wow. had, we did an out of town tour to to uh, kind of fine tune it. Mm-hmm. And uh, not only that, but I was the understudy to Carney, and I went on many times in his place. And then one day, Carney disappeared, never came, and for three days we couldn't find him. And we found he had put himself into a sanitarium, or we call it rehab now, because he was an alcoholic. Well, was that and the only I, reason? Or were there issues with his co-star? There were a lot of issues with his co-star, but he was also going through a divorce and he was also drinking. Oh, man. Anyway, he went away and he never came back. And very briefly, I played the lead uh, of uh, Felix uh, uh, with uh, Matthau. Mike Nichols directed that. Yeah. 
and Nichols came out of your you came out of the the Chicago wing. Uh, he was sure, a the theater guy. Yeah, um, that's right. And that's where he met, met Elaine. Yeah, and and but you're but he's working with very strictly scripted material here. There isn't obviously you're not going to necessarily improvise around a Neil Simon play. But how does improv affect the way he directed? You know, sometimes a good director is invisible. It is you don't as you as you remember it, you can't tell why he's a good director. But Mike uh, always wanted us to do it like a straight play. The first thing he said to us was after he made a little joke by saying, "Did you know that Edith?" Edith Head gives great wardrobe. That's at a time when people were just using the phrase great head. Yes. No, and I'm Edith Head, the yeah. famous Hollywood uh, <laughs> costumer. As, uh, as you know, Head her name great. adores the adorns the wardrobe building at Universal Studios. And um, yeah, because I absolutely. am 12 at heart, I giggle every time I pass that building because I'm a child. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then he said to us, look, it's, this is not a comedy. I just want you to play the scenes as if they were true, really happening, as if. Well, that's always true of any play, but you don't talk about that very much with a comedy. But he approached it as if it were a drama. He said, there are no jokes in this thing. If, you, if they laugh at what you say, it's because Neil Simon wrote it. What you have to do is play it for real. And he said, you poker players, of which I was one, Mm-hmm. When there's a lull in the, in the, there's a moment or two in the play where there's no dialogue going on because it's visual things happening. I don't want them, I don't want a, that to be a silent poker game where you're moving your lips but not talking. I want you to do a muted version of conversations and actually play the game. I want the audience to think you're playing the game and not just sitting there pretending. And that something happened when we got our reviews one critic said, and this is help. This is due to, due to Mike. He said, uh, "The Moscow Art Theater was just at the city center uh, a couple of weeks ago doing Chekhov, and I think those Moscow art actors could learn something watching the poker players in the Odd Couple, because wow. we played the, we played the game, and if there was ever a moment where you could hear us, and there were several moments." Uh, you could hear the game being played, at least in the first 10 rows. But, you know, kind of muted muted down. But he he just said, play it as if it's a drama, and it'll be funny. The words so you out Stanislavski, Stanislavski, for all <laughs> intents and purposes. That, that's, that's, what, that's what they said. I thought it was a, quite a tribute to Mike. But he never told you to try to be funny or anything. You're, you're, he'd never say, you're losing the laugh. It was just say, play it, be real actors as you are. But we were cast, of course, because we were. I had an unusual audition for him. Mike had seen me without knowing me at at, uh, downtown village, Second City, because he would drop in from time to time and never even tell us he was there. People would whisper that Mike's in the house, Elaine's in the house, but we would Mm -hmm. never have any traffic with them. So I came to the audition I had the script uh, in advance and I learned all my lines and it's still not a good idea, as you know, as an actor to hold you, to not hold the script. You better hold the script even if you know the lines because the minute you don't hold the script, you forget something, then you're screwed it's up. It's like a security blanket. Yeah. And then it's embarrassing if you miss a line, but if you look at the script, then you're not going to miss a line. Anyway, so it's I'm only doing uh, a three-page scene pretending to be Felix, because to audition any of the poker players, the lines were scattered. You'd have one line on one page, another line on the next page. It was impossible to audition. So people auditioned by using either uh, Mathau or Carney's lines. So I was playing Felix's lines. And I knew my lines cold, and I was getting laughs on material they knew very well, just by, you know, my reading and my timing. Uh and then near the end, uh, I had a half a page to go, and it's something Mathau said to me. Of course, that was a stage manner reading. Uh, in in frustration, I threw my script high in the air. That always gets a laugh in any in any situation. Throwing away something valuable gets a laugh. When they bring the when they brought the bill to Groucho when he's with Margaret Dumont, he said, "Let me take care of that." And he would 
bundle up and throw it across the room. Right. Anything thrown away that's valuable uh, gets a laugh. I used to do it in restaurants with friends. No, no, let me have that. Then I'd throw it on the floor. <laughs> Always gets a laugh. So I threw my script away in frustration with the Mathau character. And I got a laugh from the three or four people in the audience, Doc Simon and, you know, the producers, a handful of people. Yeah. And then it allowed me in the, in perfectly in, in league with the Felix's character, get down on my knees, continue doing my lines as I picked up the papers and made the floor neater. And I think that's the moment they decided to use me. It's amazing when you have a technical choice like that and you're like, oh, this is it. I'm booking this job. I'll see you guys on set. When you, Because you can feel it in the room sometimes yeah. where you're just like, oh, Not, I've, I've, I've got everyone else can go home. It was the first. Uh, they may have had three or four more people coming in after me. But as I went up the alley of the theater to go back to the street, the stage manager ran after me and said, you got it. I've never had that happen before. They tell you at the moment, you got it. So that moment of throwing the script away and abandon, uh, I think, was that turning point. Well, and the also Mike punch of the picking it up too. I think the the organizing it and correcting yeah. your your uh, impulsive behavior, I think, is yeah. so wonderfully Felix. Yeah, you don't really do that in hardly any audition. Would you ever do that? No. But here's a guy who wants to pick things up. <laughs> <laughs> the same day, I went and called me agent. And they said, oh, that's great. I'll find out for you when the rehearsals begin. Uh, oh, in the meantime, call Joe Hamilton. He wants to speak to you. That's Carol Burnett's husband. Mm -hmm. I had been doing some appearances with uh, Carol on a show following the Gary Moore show. It was a show called The Entertainers. Mm -hmm. CBS, she wanted, CBS wanted her to give her own show. And she said, no, I just want to be in an ensemble. And they didn't like the idea, but they agreed. And she had... Uh, uh, they had uh, Carol, uh, Bob Newhart, Katerina Valente was a singer. They also had Don DeLuise and John Davidson. And I was a sometime sketch actor because mm -hmm. I knew Carol, as I knew Carol. So I called Joe Hamilton and he said, uh, we were going to use you off and on, but now we'd like you to be a contract player in every episode of uh, The Entertainers. I said, Joe, I'd just been offered a job in Neil Simon's new script with Mike Nichols directing and I think I have to take that. So offered two jobs on the same day, which I really wanted to do the sketch show because I love to be a sketch player. Yeah. I decided to go with the, I said, this may run for two years or something. Right. So he said, I think you're making the right choice. But that was the same day it all happened. <laughs> well, then you eventually got to work with Carol on, uh, on the Altman film. Did she have anything to do with you booking the Altman film? No, no. He didn't even know I knew Carol. He saw oh, me in a play, but... He saw me in a play where I did uh, comic strips by Jules Pfeiffer. Right. And uh, and uh, <clears throat> and he, he hired me to play the husband. He said, your wife will be Carol Burnett. And I said, she's a friend of mine. I worked with her a number of times. He said, that's even better. He was glad to hear it, but uh, had no connection. Altman had a reputation for actually being rather encouraging of improv. And you can see that in his 60s and 70s work. Some of the people who show up in his films, there's you and McIntyre Dixon shows up and a lot of the older Chicago guards show up. Did you find that he was amenable to improv? Yes, he was. He just wanted you to be comfortable. And uh, he said, remember, if I don't like what you say, I can cut around it. <laughs> you know? He said to me in the beginning, he said, I heard him say to many actors, don't fall in love with this movie when it comes out. Don't make the whole thing about what's going to happen, how the reviews are going to be, how it's going to get you more jobs. Just forget about that. It, you may be cut out of the movie and we, I may cut your scenes out. I may have to for time. Uh, and we may not even find the distributor for the damn thing. <laughs> so make the make this experience about making a movie and forget what happens later. It'll be a year later. Don't worry about it. Move on. The experience, the fun of it, the thrill is making it. And he's right. And instead of hiring you, if you have a small part for two weeks or three weeks or even two days, he brings everybody in on the first day 
and it keeps him till the last because he wants to have a family around him making a movie. And he calls it our movie, not, never mine. He never says it's my movie. It's our movie. We all make it. Oh, that's, that's how Democrat, democratic yeah. he is. That's really, that's really sweet. So with that in mind, I imagine you spent a great deal of time in Malta shooting Popeye. Yeah, a total of six months eventually. Six months. So it's such yeah, an outlier, that film, because it's, it's, um, it, it was supposed to be Robin Williams' big entree into a feature career. Altman, as far as I know, had never done a quote-unquote conventional musical before. There was music in Nashville, of course. Well, yes, yes. But, you know, in terms of, yeah. like, uh, you know, the character bursts out a song without a band behind them, that kind of musical. Yeah. Um, yeah. A, the musical, the way we think of musical theater, uh, anyway. Um, yeah. Uh, so it, so everyone's kind of on untread ground here, you know. Williams has never carried a film. Altman's never directed a musical. Um, was yeah. there a real sense of experimentation on that set? There's there experimentation in every Altman film. <clears throat> okay. He loves experimentation. Okay. Yeah, and he always tells actors, I say, I hear actresses say to him, how do I play my character? He said, there is no character. I hired you to be you. You're the best person there is to be you. So now the character will become you, not the other way around. So that, that's how he looked at it. Okay, but if you're playing something that is quite literally cartoonish, where do you, how do you, and you do, I've seen the film a bunch of times. It has its detractors. It, it, it famously didn't do particularly well on its initial release, but it's got a cult following in the ensuing years. It's got a great Harry yeah. Nelson score. Um, uh, but how do you then ground these characters that were, and you, you yourself were a cartoonist and you'd worked with Jules Pfeiffer and you had done all these things that were sort of cartoon adjacent. How do you bring life to this character that is literally just a sketch on the paper and the guy just loves burgers? Like that's his big arc. <laughs> he loves burgers. Wimpy loves a burger. How do you how do you dimensionalize that? Uh, well, uh, Wimpy turned out oddly enough, even though Jules is a friend of mine. Before that, I had done a, a a play of his and a review I did of his. I knew him socially, but he didn't make Wimpy have a lot of funny lines to say because in the cartoon, Wimpy doesn't say much. He's just a hanging around guy. Yeah. Often he'll seen in the being in the background holding a hamburger, mm -hmm. so it was it didn't give, lend itself to my verbal skills of getting lines, getting laughs on lines. So I turned it into a, a visual performance. It was all about the movement and the character and the way he moved, and it became a, a graceful fat man. I I used a little bit of Gleason's body in it, and other people like Oliver Hardy, you know, who were graceful fat men. Uh, <laughs> But it had to be a visual performance. But uh, he hired acrobats and clowns. We had clowns from Italian circus who worked in that. Tiny, tiny parts. We had 50 actors. Bill Irwin began there. Oh, and that's then he right. became very, very famous. And uh, Linda Hunt was in it. And they gave her a head, a hairdo that made her look as tall as everybody else. Nah. <laughs> but uh, I would say that secret... To, not only he cast people who were had comedy backgrounds who could fall down and do tricks uh, and jump around and do acrobatics, but he also um, was also the sense of a combination of makeup and wardrobe. Lots of wardrobe was very funny or very interesting and eccentric. Tons of people. Uh, so some of the makeup and wardrobe and things that they were asked to do, like uh, movement and flips and jumping out of glass windows, supposedly. Yeah. Uh, these were all clowns and acrobats and people who knew visual comedy. So that did a lot of the job for the characters and dressing them up and the way they looked. And there were lots of eccentric makeups. A lot of those things gave the characters to the people. And then they had their skill sets. That comes up so much on this podcast, actually, people who are able to play things a little smaller because wardrobe is so over the top that they can kind of play against the outlandish costume. Because you look at the quiet work Shelley Duvall is doing in that movie because she's got that iconic sweater on and everything just kind of 
makes sense. So I guess, yeah. yeah, there's a way to sort of play against the cartoonish production design and still keep it here in, in the world of reality to sort of do the Mike I Nichols think she thing. was. I think she was much more much more perfect for the part than Robin was. Robin had to reach for it, Ugh. stretched for it. But Shelley told me she was called olive oil in middle school. <gasps> so she had a long neck. Right. And uh, in some way, she looked like olive without trying. Mm -hmm. And then she's a skillful actress, and she could sing well enough to do um, Harry's songs. Um, but I think she was... Then many of their views said she was so perfect. She was the perfect olive oil. Robin was our court jester. Of course, as you know, sure. every moment they said, okay, cut. We're moving to the new location. Take about 10 minutes off. He would always just go on and be the comedian in real life. Mm -hmm. And he never, he was almost compulsive. You almost couldn't stop doing it. Yeah. However, since it was free and we were bored in between sets, between shots, we were glad to have a guy around who would, uh, who would uh, enter, entertain us like that. So uh, that part of it was fine. He was, uh, he was fun to be around. I believe, uh, uh, I believe that Robin became a better dramatic actor than a than a, a comedian. I heard a lot. Of, I hear a lot of sound effects. Um, the first time I saw Robin in concert. On TV, his first TV special, I said after about 10 minutes, slow down, Robin, you have the job. Why are you <laughs> rushing? Why are you not waiting for laughs? Why are you forcing the, forcing the audience to slow down their laughter so they can see your next thing? Are you in charge of this or is this in charge of you? Well, he had something that Chaplin had, which was a very, very deep, need to be loved i think that yeah right pre that was a that kind of took power over his need to entertain when he was allowed to slow down and do dramatic work his, yeah, his roles great. have breath it, it's, it's oh yeah he was great in the serious moments oh so i good. think many of us i think probably most of his film work was serious i did six months Playing Wimpy in uh, in uh, in Popeye, never once ate a hamburger. And I'll tell you, this is how it was. I had tremendous experience in commercials, and I learned that you don't hold a hamburger first. You don't hold a a product in front of your costume because it gets mixed up with the product. You always hold it off to one side in midair. I learned that in commercials. Uh, And also, if it's just a box or a candle, you put it out in the middle of the air and there's nothing there but the, but the, the, the paper in the background or something, the, um, the neutral background. So I always saw through the whole movie, I'd never held it anywhere near um, <clears throat> Wimpy's chest. The hamburger is always hanging out in midair like I was selling a product. It's off to one side. And the, reason, and the reason I never ate a hamburger was this. I went to the prop man. We had a week before shooting to get familiar with each other, and uh, which isn't usually done. But we had workshops and dance classes and all kinds of things that uh, made us into a company. And I said to the prop man, it was a very big budget for the movie. It began at $13 million and became twenty. Oof. That's uh, a lot for I said, 1983. Yeah. Could you make me a, a latex rubber hamburger uh, with lettuce, tomato, hamburger, and seeds on top? Sure, we can do that. And make it have a pretend bite out of it. He said, okay. So every time I was in a scene, even if I'm in the background, I was holding the hamburger off to one side, and I was pretending to chew by using my tongue in my mouth. Mm. And so when they said action, I started to do the pretend chewing. Mm -hmm. I'm holding a thing with a bite out of it. And that's how I began every scene. It uh, now that Never, you mentioned, I'm trying. I'm picturing you in the film, and yeah, I don't ever actually see you bite. I see you having bitten. <laughs> that's craftsmanship. Well, that's I, real technique. And I also learned from commercials. I'd be <clears throat> once I was in a commercial, and there was a split screen. A guy's eating the good product, the best, you know, the good guy uh, cereal, and I'm eating the bad guy. 
<laughs> and uh, so I was eating very fast. And they were saying, you'd have to eat three of those before you had the nutrition of one of these. So my job was to wolf down uh, a lots and lots of uh, two or three bowls of uh, cereal. And then as soon as I say cut, you have to spit it all out in the spit bucket because mm -hmm. otherwise you'll get sick at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. So I learned that also, and that fed into me not wanting to eat a million hamburgers. Also, the meat they got for that little island was from Germany, and it wasn't very good. Yeah, that's a long, that's a long trip for meat. That's a really, really long trip for meat. That's Germany to Malta. Is, uh, that's that. I don't want my meat traveling that far at all. Um, you, you talk about you talk about commercials a lot, and I was I was gonna we're gonna get to a couple of other credits, but commercials are kind of you know there's a lot of actors who who say like I will not do commercials. I they look askance yeah. at it. Um, I cut yeah, my sure. teeth doing commercials. That's how I got my SAG card. I got a lot out of the experience. It's maybe not, you know, the the work I want to be remembered for, but I got a lot of work. Can you talk a little bit about the things you pick up when you're telling a story in 30 or 60 seconds? Well, uh, <clears throat> it was a big training ground for me. When I first did my first movie with Bob Altman, the cameraman said to me after a few days, uh, <clears throat> this is your first movie. I said, yeah. He says, how come you have, how come you know so much about the camera? And uh, I said, well, I did uh, a ton of commercials and the camera doesn't know it's a commercial. <laughs> uh, I learned camera technique. I know, I know if, you, if you, your arms are spread wide in the master, then you, in the medium shot, you bring your hands in and they're closer to your body. In a close-up, you might make them higher and, and near the, inside the frame. I learned all these things through doing tons of commercials. It's film technique. Uh, if you shake hands with somebody, you bring your hand up higher if you're in the close-up, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and also, uh, a guy said, to, the cameraman said to me once in wedding, when you come from behind the couch and walk around it uh, to sit down, can you, this banana around the couch? And I, I learned from commercials what banana means. It means closer to the edge of uh, not going too wide. And... Uh, Going to in not meantime, in a straight line necessarily, but curving like a banana does. Yeah, and it's yeah. close to stay close to the couch. You mm -hmm. find you, that's also valuable in the sitcom. You know, you don't waste a lot of space. But I heard Maltman say to the cameraman, "Don't talk to him." Said, "I don't want my actors thinking about a banana. Just let him come around the couch." <laughs> well, I did both. I did what he asked me, and but Bob didn't want me to be thinking about bananas. Sure, but sure. I already could do that with, I could already do that without thinking. <laughs> Since you've mentioned a couch, one of your most iconic scenes takes place on a couch. I speak, of course, of uh, 16 Candles. Is it true that John Hughes wrote that particular scene where you console Molly Ringwald for you? He did. Wow. I turned that movie down twice. Why? Because the parents, twice. Okay. Because the parents, the parents appeared in the first four minutes and the last four minutes. Oh, okay. Not exactly a great part. And mm -hmm. I had just come off Breaking Away, and my agent said, you got raves from Breaking Away. Uh, we got to wait a little while. You'll get better offers. So I turned it down twice. But John Hughes wanted me because he saw Breaking Away. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I thought it was over because we turned it down twice. And then John Hughes called the agent and says, let me have a conversation with Paul Dooley uh, personally. They don't want to give out your number, so they want to be the go-betweens. Sure, sure. So, okay, he's down in Florida doing an industrial. <laughs> <laughs> so Hughes called me and says, I've written a scene in the middle of the movie, which I hope will entice you to be in our, to be in our movie. And he sent me the script. And it was 10 pages. And I knew, because I'd done even only a few movies or watched tons of others, that there's no 10-minute scene in a movie. You know, right. They never give you a scene ten, for 10 minutes, unless some cars are crashing. Right. So I talked to John and I said, I know this is much longer than it will ever be. Uh, but I like the scene. And uh, if you don't mind making a few changes, yeah, sure, I'll do the film. But there was a line in it that said, uh, in the scene, it, it didn't talk about her being uh, sleeping on a couch or anything. 
It just it gives her a friendly pat on the behind in the script. And I said to myself, a friendly pat on your daughter's behind and detecting whether or not she's wearing panties is copying a feel. <laughs> so I didn't use those words for John Hughes, but I said, I want to change that. Yeah. And I changed it and I wrote the line which said, remember this, never mind your sister. When you meet Mr. Wright, when you meet your guy, your Mr. Wright, just make sure he knows you wear the pants in the family. Mm. Now that's an innocent remark, but she can go, oh my God, he knows. Then you cut to uh, the kid holding up her panties. That's right. the next cut. Amazing. So that innocent remark, innocent remark, took the place of a kind of a you know rude kind of crude remark. Well, it also it under if if it undercuts the dad if you do that because we've already seen a scene where her grandmother feels her up. So you can't you know you can't that's a hat on a hat at that point you know you you you've got to have uh, the dad uh-huh. distinguish himself from the other adults. Or it's a tit on a tit. Fair enough. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> anyway, that's how that that's how that scene came about. If I hadn't turned it down, it wouldn't have been in there. Later, John told me he was glad I did because he said it's a little bit of an anchor for the film where the parents aren't idiots. He said too many films make the parents in idiots. Well, that is the thing. That's a really interesting thing about that little section of your career there is because you're coming off of the late 60s and 70s where, you know, where film was starting to represent the idea that you simply could not trust anyone over 30. And and there was a lot of these uh, authority figures and parents who were just tyrants. And here's this guy who is stopping, even though he, he misses the birthday and that's horrible, he stops to listen to her in a way that you hadn't seen in 15 or 20 years of filmmaking. That's right. And I think that's on the page, but I think it's also to the credit of the performance. No, it is It is in part my acting, but I wasn't thinking when I was doing, this is the best scene I'll ever do. I just did my job. Right. I just did it instinctively the way I would you would feel about a daughter. So the first, the beginning, and the end, he's a little bit more of a doofus in the beginning. Yeah. And and by the end, the audience loves him because he's understanding. When I give her a little, a high sign saying, she points to him and say, this is him, this is the guy. I give her a little thumbs up or something, which has become an iconic moment. And I get tons of things in the mail with that moment where I give her a little circle of my fingers. It, uh, is, it say, has been gift yeah. repeatedly. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, a, it's it, a lovely it's moment. A, it's a, an approval thing, you know. A lot of people send me that picture to sign. They must, and also the one, on, the one on the couch too. There, but is... there, it was a lot of a lot of fun, and it, it it's so iconic that it influenced other people, to, uh, you know, casting directors to hire me to be the dad. I, I've had a couple moments in my career as I've gotten older where I've had to play the dad of teenagers. And I, I'm not, I don't know that I actually articulate the phrase, what would Paul Dooley do? But I, I think it's in the, I think it's in the back of my mind. You know, I think it's something that I uh, am subconsciously considering, like, oh, how would he handle this, this moment? I want to talk for a moment about um, a grandfather you played a few years later on my so-called life working with a, a young Hollywood upstart named Winnie Holtzman. Yeah. Um, luckily, luckily, I was married to her. Um, so, uh, listen, you don't have to tell me what a problem the casting couch is in this town. I'm, <laughs> I'm abundantly aware of it. But what is it like when you your wife is the boss is it does it take pressure off does it put untold pressure on you're great on that show it's a terrific show uh yeah. when i when i was watching it, i was in my low 20s so i was kind of sandwiched between the teenage characters and the grown-up characters and i kind of felt for everybody on the screen i, I had a certain amount of empathy yeah. for everything that was going on up there what was it like working on that program well uh, i wouldn't say working for my boss because she, but when I met her, uh, I was already, uh, I'd already done Breaking Away and, and things like that. So to her, I was a big movie star. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> she's laughing. <laughs> so, so she didn't, she didn't have to, she didn't, she didn't have to feel she, she was my boss in so-called life. Uh, 
she already knew I could act the part. She wanted somebody that she could trust and wanted anybody who could bring something to it. So it just automatically happened. And yeah. I wasn't thinking of her as my boss. Now I think of her as my boss. Sure. <laughs> After 33 years of marriage. Yeah. There's so much laughter coming off of the corner of the screen here. Uh, it's it's endearing, and we're going to keep all of it. But yeah, so let's talk about Electric Company for a moment. What? How was that show pitched? Was it pitched as like, we're going to be like a, a higher volume Sesame Street? How did that show come about? I was, I was called in to meet with them, and they said, we're putting together a new show. It's going to help children uh, uh, learn to read the basics. <clears throat> uh, we don't have a... Uh, we're going to have a staff of uh, seven actors, uh, seven writers. Uh, there's no format. There's no cast. There's no idea. We just have to come up with where the, uh, a playbook uh, path, you know, to what the show would be, what it's going to become. There's no mm -hmm. title, nothing. We want you guys to work for six weeks and come up with uh, enough scenes that we can uh, know we have a pilot. So I wrote so many characters with joke names that somehow they got the idea that I could create characters that were continuing characters. One is Fargo North, Decoder. Right. And uh, another one is uh, Child Chef, Julia Grownup. I called uh, Morgan Freeman Easy Reader because he was right. a junkie for reading, but it was basically Easy Writer. Right. Right. And, and I did a ton of them, Jennifer, The Jungle. And uh, I said, and they finally, they made me the head writer out of the seven of us. And I told my guys once, uh, I had an idea to have Judy, uh, Judy Grobart uh, in her pet helmet. She's playing uh, Judy of the Jungle. And she has a pet gorilla. She's teaching him to read. But he can't say, any, say or do anything. If she gives him an example with cat and cut, he would just go, ah, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> However, looking over her shoulder were the kids who, who said, that's cat, C-A-T, cat. I'm smarter than the gorilla. And it gives them a sense of accomplishment by diverting it like that. And I, they said, what's the name of the gorilla? I said, I don't know, just write one. And I'm just giving you the idea. Each of you write one. And they came back and they all named the gorilla Paul. <laughs> they just said the Which is either a tribute, <laughs> either a tribute, or they're, or they're zinging me. <laughs> uh, it's probably a little from column A, a little from column B. I love the idea, and for some reason, it never clicked on me that yeah, easy reader would have been a way to sort of tap into youth culture um, for like that first crop, that first crop of hippies who were having children, <laughs> and be like, yeah, oh, that's well, an easy writer. <laughs> my. My idea for Easy Readers, he would talk to you and, and read uh, the name on your shirt like a polo or something. Uh -huh. He'd pull out your back collar and read the label inside. He'd take off your watch and read what's on the back. Waterproof, magnetic, you know. And he would, uh, uh, he would read your sneakers. Anything that he could read, he would read. Places where you wouldn't think about. I wrote a scene where they took him to the park and said, we know you love reading. We all love reading, but you'd go too far with it. You never stop. He said, okay, so what are you doing with me in the park? We want you to relax and not think about it. Sit on the, sit on the bench there. Look at nature, trees, grass. Look at the beautiful sky. He leans back and looks at the sky and says, good year. <laughs> he reads in unexpected places. That was my my idea for him. Have you had a chance to but connect I, with Morgan Freeman since then? At a couple of political rallies, uh, I met him, and he's very warm and gave me a big hug. And but we travel in different circles. No, sure, sure. He's he he, he is not doing a lot of uh, uh, improvisational comedy. Uh, his loss. No. Um, but um, that is a uh, a a wonderful. You for all intents and purposes, that's that's his big break. You know, he was doing a lot of theater in New York, but you helped shape his first TV work. Well, he it ran for seven years. It gave him a nice salary. Uh, you've done so much recent work on. So much. I mean, we have our, our resumes overlap in the sense that we've both done Curb Your Enthusiasm. You've done um, Children's Hospital. 
Um, you've mm-hmm. done a lot of really crazy, edgy comedy. And I think I know the answer to this. You have no plans to retire, do you? No, it's done for me by the pandemic. The last oh. job I had was January 2020. No, yeah, 2020. I was on Modern Family. That was my last job. Really? Yeah. You'll, you'll be back. I'm not worried. Yeah. I may have been retired. No, no, I don't, I don't think, I mean, uh, I I have a feeling that you are one of those people as Winnie saw that we can just trust to, uh, to step in and crush the job. And, uh, I, I I think you've got, right now you're standing at around 214 credits. I think you've got quite a few more in you. I've often said to her in the last 10 years, if I never get another job being a dad on a sitcom, I think I won't matter to me. (laughs) I just did it to get out of the house. Some of them. (laughs) But I did get a few jobs in the last 10 years that were really uh, showcases. I did The Good Doctor with a a great part where I was about 10 scenes or something. I remember that. I was going to ask about that. That's an amazing cast, too. You've got some great people on that show. Um, Yeah. You've had a bunch of really, really strong work recently. I, I firmly believe there's a lot more to come. Paul Dooley, I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much for doing this. But what will I do with the rest of my day? <laughs> and that is an episode wrap on Mr. Paul Dooley. He is on Twitter, doesn't update it too much, but you can find him at the Paul Dooley, and he has at least three credits in pre-production on IMDb. We are lucky to share the world with him. Forever Dog. Household Faces is a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by John Ross Bowie, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Produced by Ben Blacker. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. Until next time, when's lunch? Yeah.